You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Fall's here. No. <laughs> Fall is here. I'm, I'm excited. Um, so uh, yesterday I was out blowing the leaves because they've already started falling. and uh, So blowing them off our deck. Some of you know uh, that uh, we replaced the boards on our deck this summer, earlier this summer. And we had wood. And it had rotted. I mean, it, I'm not sure when the deck was built. Uh, we've been in the house two and a half years, and uh, very quickly we discovered they had painted over some rotted wood, and there were literally were holes in places. So we replaced it with a composite type of material. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like the look of wood. I really do. It just looks better. I, to me, I just love the look. But I have to admit, it is so much easier to clean composite, and it, I don't ever have to paint or stain it. Again, so that rack part made me happy. Um, however, I've noticed something about our deck. Because we use, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the, the construction of these decks, but in order to secure them, there's two, one or two ways. One is you can actually put a screw through it into the, the framing below it, or you can as you use clips, which goes into the side, so you actually don't see anything on the surface. Well, we did the clips, which means that there's a little clip that goes in between each board that determines the width between each board that's on your deck, because you don't have them you know, right up against each other. Uh, you know, moisture has to get through and water and stuff. And so what I've discovered is that the gaps are a little bit wider with my clips and the composite than they used to be um, with the wood decking. Now, why does that matter? Nine times out of ten, it doesn't. The only time it matters is when I'm trying to blow leaves off the deck. Because they get, yes, they stick in the cracks, and leaves do not dry flat, do they? They curl, and so they get in there, and they curl, and they get stuck. And so I'm blowing and blowing, and it just nothing. So I literally, as I'm blowing, I'm having to take my foot and pull it out, you know, between the cracks, and so I'm doing this. And, and there's other times where I'm, I'm <laughs> this is what really gets me. I'm blowing the leaves, and I'm blowing them that way, and they do this. And they act, they literally go behind me the opposite direction in which I was blowing them. Um, so here's the thing. I understand the physics of it. You know, it's kind of like airplanes. You know, the, the, the air going, the wind go, going over the wings causes lift. And so I understand the physics of it. I understand how leaves work and stuff like that. Even though I can understand it in my mind, I don't like it. I just don't like it. It's irritating. It's frustrating. And I don't like it. So, it's possible. So, you know that emotion I'm talking about? You understand it. I don't like it. It's possible to have that same feeling, that same emotion, after reading the passage in James we're going to look at this morning. We understand it. He makes some good points. I don't like it. Now, in uh, the preceding verses we read, in fact, last week we talked, and James was you know, speaking out against the landowners, the rich landowners who were controlling everything. They, weren't, they, were, they were actually withholding pay from the laborers, and they were using the court, the legal systems to uh, get their way, and, and it was just, and, and James really lashed out at them in that passage last week, and he tells them, judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. <clears throat> And so in the passage we're about to read, James now turns his attention back to the abused, the people for whom life seems to have been unfair. They just can't seem to get on top of things, and they've been struggling, and they can't get back on top. And so in James chapter 5, we'll start with verse 7. 
Uh, so if you have your Bible or your device or if you want to follow along on the screen, uh, James chapter 5, verse 7, read through verse 12. <clears throat> Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for the words of James. And Father, I just ask for your um, help um, as I unwrap this uh, this morning and as we dig a little deeper, that each of us would leave here this morning with something that we can take with us that will help us uh, not just the rest of the day, but as we go into the week and Lord, even the days, weeks, months, even years ahead, Father, that your truth would come alive in our hearts and in our spirits. And uh, we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Um, throughout the five chapters of the book of James, a very small book in the New Testament, throughout all five of the chapters, James has been continually um, challenging the behavior of Christ followers. Except for last week, we looked at he actually was talking to, to non-Christ followers. Um, more often than not, what he's talking about um, is he's talking to Christ followers. And, he, and the basic premise is that if you are a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit is in you, your life should look like it. There should be evidence of that. There should be some change within that. And he's not saying, he's not saying hey, in order for you to be a Christ follower, you have to do good things. That that's, that's, you know, that's your way to be saved, if you want to use that term. What he's saying is that doing good things doesn't get you to heaven, but if heaven is in you, if Jesus is in you, if the Holy Spirit is in you, there should be evidence of that. And so he talks about this throughout the different chapters. He's talked about things like, remember we, earlier on we talked about uh, showing favoritism. That, that was one of the things that was happening, that they were giving, uh, people were giving um, more attention and giving favor to those who are wealthy or powerful. And, and James says, stop that. Don't do that. Um, he, they're also, he's talking one time, we're talking about just speak kindly to one another. They need to treat each other well, uh, treat each other with respect. Then again, last week he lays into the rich landowners, um, and he actually says this, says, you can start crying now, bad things are coming. You know, all right, you know, you can start weeping and wailing now because it's going to get rough. And then today, in the passage we're looking at here, he turns his attention back to the poor and the oppressed, and you expect him to say good things, but he doesn't do that. He actually um, starts his, this passage, he starts this section with two words, be patient. Does anyone like to hear those words, be patient? I have never, if I ever want to start a fight with Betsy, I was like, hey, just you know, cool out, you know, chill out, or be patient, you know, so 
that does not work. I've discovered over time. It took me a few times to learn that, but I've learned that. Do not just and and we understand. Everyone understands that. I mean, we all get it, but none of us like it. None of us like it or want that. And and it's. I mean, we just don't like it. It goes against everything within us. But that's what James is telling his readers. Now, to be fair, James has good reason to tell the people this, um, to be patient. Patience is a function of faith. It is. It's a function of faith. And exercising your faith is always good. It's good. So, so there there's, is some value to what he's saying. And James has some very practical guidance for the people as they wait for God's intervention. One of the things he tells them or suggests in the verses we could actually take out of this one is look up. Be calm. In Acts 1, we're told that Jesus will return again one day. And he'll usher in the end of days, the end of of time as we know it. There are more than a hundred verses in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, that speak of Jesus' second coming, of his coming again. It's been a central component to Christian faith for centuries. This idea of their second coming, the return of Jesus. That's what James is referring to when he, when he references, be patient until the Lord's coming. That's what he's referring to. Jesus has already, he's, he's, he had died, resurrected, had gone to heaven, and James is speaking to that time in the future when Jesus will be coming. Now, what he's essentially telling them, he said, the solution to your problems will not come by human intervention. It will come only when Jesus returns. Now, we have to remember that our identity is in Christ. It really is. That's what we're about, and that's, what we're, that's, that's how we need to identify and think of ourselves, and that we will spend eternity with him. This life will come to an end for all of us. It will come to an end. The next life will last forever. And that's what James is wanting his people to realize. Listen, yes. It, it, it's, it really stinks right now, and it's hard, and it's difficult, but this isn't forever. That's forever. Jesus is coming again. Look up. Be calm. That's what he's saying. Another thing that's helpful, he says, is look in, be clean. He talks to me, he, said, he says, quit arguing against one another. Stop it. You know, quit, quit treating each other that way. And what he's essentially saying, or, or specifically saying, that you need to manage your relationships well. You need to manage your relationships well. You need to talk with people in the right tone of voice. You need to treat people with respect. You need to treat people the way you'd want to be treated. Even though he doesn't really go into that much detail, that's in essence what he's saying. Treat people well. Manage your relationships well. James also tells us that we can look back and be challenged. James pointed to the Old Testament prophets, and even he even pointed to Job as an example. Here's the thing to remember. The Old Testament prophets, and the Old, you know, they really had a rough life. They did not have an easy life. They were social outcasts. Um, they, they, they did some really weird things, and they lived some really challenging, difficult lives. But, but the people in the time of Jesus, in the time that James is writing, the people held them in high esteem. These were people who live the way they said. So in other words, their walk matched their talk. They lived the way they said people should live. And so even though their life as a whole wasn't necessarily one that they wanted to live, they did look at them with esteem and said there's value there in, in how they're living their lives. 
And what James is saying is that if God can work through the Old Testament prophets, he can work through you too. What about in your own life? How have you seen God provide for you? Seeing God's faithfulness in our past helps us have faith in the present. When we find ourselves struggling and things just aren't working, what gives us hope is looking back and saying, this is what God has done. And here's what I know. God hasn't done all the things he's done in your life up to this point just to say, okay, I'm done. You're on your own. You know, be warm, be blessed. You know, have a good day. You know, I'm going over here now. You know, he didn't bring us this way just to abandon us. He's not done with us yet. The same idea applies to our future as well. <clears throat> There's a, from the time I was young, um, I've heard um, all these um, stories of my behavior when I was even younger. Um, it just seems to be a thing. And whenever my kids or with my, my parents and my kids around, they're always asking, you know, tell us another story of, you know, you know things my dad, my, me, did when I was, you know, usually very, very young. I was not bad. I was just really busy. Um, and uh, in this point in time, when I understand this particular story, as I understand, I was about two years old. Um, and it was the typical, we turn our backs for one second, and I got a bottle of furniture polish and drank it. <laughs> um, rushed me to the hospital, and uh, the doctor uh, says uh, he'll survive, but he's going to be a very sick little boy. And uh, he says there's really nothing we can do for him here, and so he sent us home with a prescription, and uh, for some, I don't know if it was a, I don't, I really don't know what the prescription was, but the way the story is told is, is we went home, my dad held me in his arms, prayed for me, and prayed that God would heal me, set me in my, laid me in my crib, and again, I'm not, I'm obviously not up and about, I'm, I don't know, I don't know that I was sleeping, but I certainly was not well. And pray for me, sent me down, and then he actually left to go get the prescription filled at the pharmacy. As the story's told, my dad hadn't even gotten to the end of the driveway when I got up, was climbing out of my crib, telling mom I was hungry and, you know, I wanted to go play. And so it was, was, was just an instant type of thing. So as I was growing up, every time that story was told, and unfortunately it gets told often among with a dozen other stories of things that I did, um, it always ended with them telling me that God had healed me, and they always added this at the end. God must have something special planned for you. God must have something special planned for you that he would heal you and do this in your life. See, I grew up knowing that God was active in my life, and that he had a plan and he had a purpose for my future. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I sometimes many days wake up wondering what that is. But there's always the sense that God is active, that God's involved, and, and that God is with me, and that God is working, wanting to work through me. And we see this in the Bible, that God, in the Old Testament, God told Moses to tell the people, he said, tell your children what I have done for you so they won't forget. And there's this thing about investing in our kids, not just, you know, the clothes and the food and not the basics. It's this idea that God is with them and God has a plan and purpose for their life. 
And so it doesn't have to be a life-saving type of thing, like you know, someone, you know, it doesn't have to be a life-saving miracle. It could be something as simple as, man, you are really smart and intelligent. God must have special plans for you as you get older. Or you are incredibly good with people. You have amazing people skills. God must have something special planned for you when you get older. We need to build hope and expectations in one another, specifically, especially our kids, but even in one another. Build hope and expectation. Recognize and see what God is doing and speak that into the life. Because we probably know others see things in us that we probably don't recognize. Isn't that true? And we need to do that for other people. Recognize and see and build hope in them so that they then can have that same hope and expectation for God in their life. And that leads me to my last point that James makes in this passage. Look forward, be consistent. Verse 12, he says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Now, to be clear, when he uses the word swear here, he's not talking about profanity. Okay, I think most of us got that in the context of the passage. What he's talking about here, that, that swearing is equal to an oath. The same thing, I guess, uh, you know, if you're, I don't think I still do this. You don't have, when I went to, I sat in on a trial, you put your hand in the Bible and you do swear to tell the truth and hold truth. I don't think they do that. Do they still do that? Okay. All right. The swearing is taking an oath. Do you promise? Essentially is what it's asking. Um, here's the thing. There is a real, a lot of speculation as to what that's all about. No one has any, no one of all the different commentaries, everything they've looked at, all the reading, no one has, can say categorically, this is what James, why he said that here. We, we can speculate. Here's my sense of that. Here's what I think happened. Um, and I've mentioned this before, that in this particular time, when James is writing, there was incredible political upheaval going on within the people. That you had, Rome was in power, and Rome had sided, had been using what was one of the Jewish religious groups. There was the, 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 um, uh, the, the um, Sadducees and the Pharisees, and there's also the Essenes, another group. And so there's various groups, and, and Rome had, had used one of the particular groups to help maintain power and control. So you had that going on. But you had this rebellion faction going on here. These uh, people who wanted to overthrow Rome, who wanted to be independent again, um, and they were—they literally were radical zealots. I mean, they were willing to go to war over this. In fact, about ten years after James wrote this, there was a rebellion, and it's, there actually was a war against Rome. They lost terribly, but there was—that was what was going on. That was the current going on there. The thought is is that part of what was happening is there is that people were being for whose side are you on? And essentially was, so if, if someone was confronted, are you on our side, the zealot side, or on you, the Rome side? And the thought was, the, the same was that if you do not swear allegiance by God, you cannot be trusted. And so people were taking these oaths and pledging allegiance to things and using God's name in vain, if you will, that they were using him as a way of trying to show um, their association with something when really that's not what the name of God is supposed to be used for. So again, that's just my own thinking that it had more to do with the political climate and allegiance to a particular political party, um, put in a present day context, rather than something that was more individually spiritual there. But James is saying, clearly what James is saying, don't get caught up in these things. Um, don't do it. Stop this. 
What James is saying is that we're to be consistent while looking forward for Christ's return. So I've already kind of hinted my thoughts about this. But honestly, although James gives some helpful advice, and it leaves me, though, with a feeling I get when I blow leaves off my deck. I get it. doesn't help. I mean, James told the rich landowners that their day of judgment's coming. And then he tells the Christ followers who are reading his letter that they need to do what? Be patient. Be patient. Really? Really? That's the way you got is be patient? In that moment in the life of the Christ followers, what has changed? Nothing. Nothing has changed. And since we know now, I mean, 2,000 years later, that Jesus still hasn't returned, we know that for those Christ followers, nothing ever did change. They woke up every morning for the rest of their lives with many of the same struggles and problems. Nothing changed. Now, this begs a very important question. What's the use? What's the point of all this? If nothing changes, let me put it another way. Why live a life faithful to God if bad things still exist in your life? This got me to thinking this week. I was just kind of reflecting on this, which kind of led me to another question. Is it enough to follow God simply because of who he is and not for what he does? Is having God and nothing else enough? Is that sufficient for us? So let me frame it differently. Let me frame that question differently. Was God enough for John the Baptist as he was being led to his execution? Was God enough for the Apostle Stephen as he was being stoned? Was God enough for Paul while he sat in a prison in Rome? The answer to all those is yes. All three of those clearly, time and again, said, it has nothing to do with my circumstances. It's about God. Each one of these men, and we see evidence of this in women as well, each one of them put all of their hope, all of their faith, all of their confidence in the reality that their life with God alone was sufficient. Not because their present circumstances were good, but that God alone was sufficient in spite of their circumstances. Now this, I believe, is at the heart of what James is trying to tell the people. He said, life here on earth isn't going the way you want it. But don't focus on that. Focus on Jesus. Jesus is coming back. And even if he doesn't come back in your lifetime, He is enough for you now. Listen, when uh, life is difficult, one of Satan's greatest tricks is to get you to think that you're all alone. No one else is going through what you're going through. No one else has ever gone through it. No one else ever will go through it. No one else can identify. No one else can understand. You're all alone. But you're not alone. In Matthew 28, Jesus promises to be with us for all eternity. 
And he tells us then that when, when, when we commit our lives to follow him, that the Holy Spirit resides within us. The Holy Spirit is within us. We're not alone. God promises to be with us. He doesn't promise us that life will always work out the way we want it to, but he will promise to be with us. <clears throat> so let me leave you with a question. In times of adversity, when no, one, when no answer is coming, or you get an answer you don't want, is God enough? Is Jesus enough for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, um, for your word and for these words of James. They're, they're, not, they're not happy words. They're not words that we walk out of here rejoicing and singing. It's a very harsh reality. But Father, it really does get at the core of faith. Our, our faith is not because of our circumstances. Our faith is because of you and you alone. And so, Father, if there's any here today who might be struggling with that, Lord, I pray that they would experience and encounter you this morning like they've never encountered you before. Father, may they sense your Holy Spirit right now, wherever they're sitting. May they sense you, Lord, alive within them. And may that knowledge, Father, may that reality of you be enough. We don't have to like the circumstances we're in. And we'll continue to work to see them changed. But Father, it's not going to change how we feel about you. It's not going to change about how we think about our life with you. That our life with you, Father, is what it is. Regardless of our circumstances. So Father, this day, this week, and Father, in the months, even years ahead, when adversity hits, may we look to you not just to help us solve the problem or circumstance, but may we find you in a more, in an even deeper level than we currently are. Father, may we understand that our faith is not wrapped up in outcomes. It's wrapped up in the journey, in the walk, in the life with you. And Father, life doesn't get any better than this when we come to that point. Lord, that's my prayer for all of us this morning, that we become not just content, but we become joyful in the knowledge that we have you in our life, and that's enough. Lord, and we just uh, continue to trust you for all things. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. I want to end our time here with a song, and uh, Julie is going to sing us a song we've sung here before. Um, it has, the, the name of it is as well. It's Bethel Music has put it out. Some of you may not know this, but the song is actually um, uh, based off a hymn that was written 1876. So it's 100 and 150 years old at this point in time. A guy by the name of Horatio Spafford wrote it. It is well with my soul. Uh, some of you may not know the history behind this hymn, but real quick, Spafford was a lawyer, an attorney, um, and a real estate investor in Chicago. He lost all of his real estate holdings in, in the great Chicago fire of 1871. And um, it just devastated his, his wealth, his worth. And, but uh, Spafford also was a big supporter of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of the day. And uh, D.L. Moody was holding a a crusade um, services over in England. 
And so Spafford was going to take his family over for a little R&R to get away, but also to be with his friend D.L. Moody and support him. Um, and so they made a plan that uh, at the time they're taking a ship to go over uh, to England to be with there. Um, just like the day before, right, right around the time they're supposed to leave, um, business things happen. Spafford says, listen, I can't go right now. I, I'm gonna, he sent his wife and four daughters on. He said, you guys go on ahead. I'll meet you in a week or two. I had to get this cleared up. <clears throat> um, on the way over, the wife and daughter, their ship collides with another ship and sinks. 226 people lose their lives including the four daughters of Spafford. His wife survives. The four daughters, uh, 12, 7, 4, and 18 months, um, they uh, die in the shipwreck. Spafford gets a text from his wife, ultimately, or not text, I'm sorry, telegram. A telegram, which was the text of the day, um, a telegram from his wife saying, uh, saved alone. Or alone, it was like two words, just that she was the only one. So here's what happens. And he, he uh, a week or two later, takes off in a boat to crosses the, the Atlantic. The, um, the, the way the story is told, the way I understand it, is that right around the place where his daughters and the wife's ship sank is where he penned the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Now, there's four verses that um, he wrote, part of this hymn. Um, first one, listen to these words. Again, this is the guy who's just had his whole wealth rubbed out by a fire. He's just lost his four daughters. And he writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well. The final verse, again, it's kind of coming supporting what I'm just trying to say with James. He says this in the fourth verse: "For me, be it Christ, be it Christ, hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pain shall be mine. For in death as in life, Thou wilt whisper Thy peace to my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well." For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.